If you have your Bibles with you, would you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, please, as we continue the series in Corinthians, and I think we're on number 6, even though this is number 5, which Dan will bring us this message in a moment. Quite an interesting reading today. The church has not been terribly good. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that doesn't occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. And you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and put out of your fellowship, the man who did this? Even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. And I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so the sinful nature may be destroyed, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you, Sue, for reading that. Uh, as Sue said, we are on the sixth week of our studies in Corinthians now. And hopefully your knowledge about the letter has increased some. Hopefully you've been challenged by it, um, maybe even encouraged a little bit. And I hope that it's had an impact on your, on your personal faith, as well as um, increasing your knowledge of the letter um, and of the Word of God through Paul. I'm going to confess something to you this morning. Um, when I opened my Bible to chapter 5, to begin preparing for today's sermon, uh, my heart sank a little. Um, the first thing I noticed in the NIV was the title, Expel the Immoral Believer, with an exclamation mark at the end of it. And it sort of got worse from there. Um, as I read through, you come across phrases such as, uh, A man has his father's wife, and hand this man over to Satan. And I was sorely tempted to, to close my Bible and turn on Netflix. Um, but knowing that I was going to have to stand here this morning and talk to you about this chapter, I persevered. Um, and I'm glad I did. Because actually, I think there's a really important message for us here this morning. Um, so just in case you're in the same position that I was, um, and you're already thinking, oh, I'm not going to cope with this today. Stick with me, because I have some good stuff in there as well. Now, we know from the first week that this was actually Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church. We've lost the first one. I don't know where it's gone. Someone put it down. 
it's missing. Um, but this is his second letter, and he's writing this letter partly to answer some questions that they had. So the church in Corinth had kept in communication with Paul, and they'd, they'd asked him various things. Um, but also, he's writing to respond to some things that he's heard that were going on in the church. In chapter 1, verse uh, 11, it talks about those from Chloe's household. I don't know who Chloe was, but apparently some people from her household had reported things to Paul about the church. And so the first four chapters that we've looked at over the last five weeks have all been dealing with this this issue that he'd heard about, about the division in the church. Um, And I gave you a summary of that during the sermon last week. But now Paul is moving on to a different situation. Something else that he's heard about during his stay in Ephesus. And he says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that does not even occur among the pagans. A man has his father's wife. He's not kidnapped her. It's the other thing. (laughs) So as we've spoken about, Corinth was this large commercial city Um, very cosmopolitan, really where anything goes. Um, To quote Obi-Wan Kenobi, you'll never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. And uh, prostitution was legal, uh, and in fact it was encouraged as a form of worship to the goddess Aphrodite. And there was a phrase that was floating around at the time, coined by the Greeks, which was to behave like a Corinthian. And if you behave like a Corinthian, you you were sexually devious. You had sexual immorality in your life. Not really something to be proud of, is it? But it was okay. I mean, it was normal, in fact, and there was an acceptance within the society of the day, and this acceptance had been adopted by the believers in Corinth, and perhaps, perhaps even intensified by their new life in Jesus. You know, they were forgiven of the sins of their past. This is the message they'd heard from Paul, so... Now is the time to live it up. And is it sometimes the case that when we know God will forgive, it perhaps makes it easier to sin? If everything is forgiven, I can do what I want. And we can adopt a sort of a cavalier attitude and maybe even a tolerance in our own lives. And so Paul writes with this intensity. You can sense his tone, can't you? It's actually been reported. I can't believe what I'm hearing. And it's to help them see that this is not okay. Guys, it's not all right. (laughs) You need to know that. Worse than that, the sin is beyond even what is considered okay by the world's standards. He says you've got a step further. It's not just wrong. Even people in the world consider this wrong. And essentially what's alluded to here is a form of incest. Even though it's likely that it was his mother-in-law rather than his biological mother, it was still Wrong, very wrong, both by the biblical standards and the world standards. And Paul is shocked. But he's more shocked that they're not shocked. Verse 2 reads, And you are proud. Shouldn't you have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? There's that Corinthian pride again. We talked about this a lot last week. Um, And they were actually proud that this man was still with them. Perhaps proud of their um, acceptance of him despite the sin in his life. And I think this raises a question for us. And I think the question is, what is our attitude towards sin? 
I'm sure very few of us would say that we're proud. But there may be other attitudes that we've adopted. Maybe a tolerance, maybe an acceptance even. Perhaps we just kind of ignore it and sort of hope it'll go away eventually all by itself. Or maybe we find excuses for it. You know, this is my one vice. Yeah, right. But Paul tells them, he tells the church in Corinth, that their attitude should be one of mourning. And the word he uses here is, is, is the exact same word, the sort of mourning that you would uh, do if someone that you loved had died. So this is a strong word. It says that your response to sin should be that you're grief-stricken, that you're heartbroken, that you're weeping almost. But the Corinthian church was not. And in fact, there was this sense in which they were proud. And the acceptance of the sin was causing them all sorts of problems. Firstly, the man himself. He was not right with God. He claimed to be a believer. He claimed to be a follower of Jesus. And yet, the sin in his life was leading him astray. Now, Earlier in the week, I was running a Bible study with the Primetime Life Group. We meet together on a Tuesday, um, and at the moment, we're going through the Gospel of Matthew together. And we've just started uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which is this three-chapter-long uh, in Matthew sermon that Jesus gives. And he's, it's all about his <clears throat> um, expectations of his disciples. It's all about how um, those that follow him, those that are believers, should behave. And it starts with what are called the Beatitudes which is sort of basically how to be happy or how to be blessed. Um, and one of the things I said to the group was a good way to think of it is that the Beatitudes are the attitudes of the believers, believer attitudes, how we should think and behave as followers. And it contains things like um, being merciful, acting as a peacekeeper, um, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, which are all wonderful things. But it starts with these two internal attitudes, this internal reality. It talks about being poor in spirit and it talks about mourning. And I think they're linked and I think they follow each other for a reason. You see, if you are poor in spirit, then you're aware that the sinful nature that is inherent to all of us has separated you from God. That we have um, no spiritual assets, that we are spiritually bankrupt to borrow a financial term. Nothing to commend us to God. And I think this beatitude is first because this is where we all need to start with God. Whether we've been a Christian for a long time, whether we're not yet a Christian. The theologian Charles Spurgeon said, Not what I have, but what I have not is the first point of contact between my soul and God. And at the core of our faith is this awareness that on our own we are hopeless. And the correct response to this, the right attitude towards this, is the second one, the second beatitude, which is to mourn. To have a deep grief over our situation. To sense the depth of our loss, almost. And it's because this is the attitude that leads to repentance. That leads to us making a change. In 2 Corinthians, the other letter that Paul wrote to Corinthians that's in our Bible, Paul says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Godly sorrow. That's the same as mourning, isn't it? Sorrow, mourning. Godly sorrow brings repentance 
and leads to salvation that leaves no regret. Once we know that our sin is keeping us from God, it grieves us and it brings us sorrow. And in that moment, we turn back to him. In that moment, we seek his forgiveness and he's faithful to forgive. The Sermon on the Mount says that those who mourn will be comforted. God will come close. And if there's sin in our lives, whether it's sexual or otherwise, um, our attitude should be one of grief. Not so that we can be miserable or go around in sackcloth and ashes, but so that we put back on the path to God. And that's why Paul suggests what he does. As we read on in verse 5, he says, Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Hand this man over to Satan. There's an extremely uncomfortable sentence. At first I thought, well, no, I don't, I don't want to hand this man over to Satan. I mean, I, I can see what he's doing is wrong, but this seems perhaps a little bit harsh. You know, let's get in some, some counselling or something. Deal with these Oedipus issues, you know. That's a Freud joke, just Google it later if you're not sure. But when Paul talks about handing him over to Satan, he's really talking about the world outside of the church. The world outside of the community of believers. And the idea through the New Testament is that um, Satan seems to have an authority, he seems to be in charge of the world, and that God is in charge of the church. In another letter, Paul talks about the world um, being a dominion of darkness. In John 12, Jesus spoke about Satan being the prince of the world. And if you're sort of unsure about this idea of uh, Satan having authority in the world, then you know, just spend some time watching the news. Because there's definitely a prevailing darkness in the world. And so he says, hand this man over Satan. Put him back in the world. Remove him from the community. And he says that this is for the destruction of the flesh. This is another extremely uncomfortable sentence. And it almost seems that Paul is telling them to put this man back in the world to die. But that's not it. You see, I think Paul's intention is to bring this man back to mourning so that he'll come back to repentance. But he can't do that if the church is complicit in the sin. If his Christian brothers and sisters are fine with the way that he's behaving, then he's unlikely to ever turn back. He's not going to bother amending his ways. I think the NLT translation puts it slightly better. It reads, hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed. And that's the bit that Paul wants to do away with. The discipline is not given so much um, to punish but to awaken. To help him to see that there's a darkness in him that he needs to deal with. And actually, you know, Paul is following principles that were set out by Jesus. We read in Matthew 18, um, Jesus says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, which were the people that you avoided in that day and time. Jesus is saying, you know, if there is sin 
amongst your Christian bro- and this is important amongst your Christian brothers and sisters because this message is for those that are in the church, not those outside the church. It says, if there's sin amongst your Christian brothers and sisters, you need to do something about it. Go to them privately. Speak to them. And if it doesn't work, you know, just take along a couple of others and, and try again. And if it doesn't work, they get the church involved. And if they continue, you need to avoid them so that they can see the error of their ways. I also don't think Paul intends for this punishment to be forever. Again, in 2 Corinthians, the the other letter we have in our Bible to the Corinthian church, he writes, The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him, so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. Now we don't know for sure whether Paul is talking about the same person, or somebody else that he suggested discipline for, but it just gives us a glimpse into Paul's heart. And Paul's heart is for restoration. Paul's heart is to see people restored, not destroyed. But restoration only comes through the right attitude towards the sin in our lives. And don't forget, Jesus says that God comforts those who mourn. So once the attitude is right, God comes close. So Paul moves on um, to tell us some of the consequences that the church will face if they don't follow his suggestion. And he does it in a slightly odd way, I'll be honest. (coughs) He says, your boasting is not good. We're on verse 6 now. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, Paul, very much like um, Jesus, was a Jewish man. In fact, Paul was brought up as a Pharisee um, in his early life. And this is a very Jewish picture. And it's connected to the Passover. Excuse me a sec. And the Passover is a feast that celebrated each year by the Jewish people. And it had to do with their freedom from slavery in Egypt. They were in captivity in Egypt, and they were freed um, by Moses and God. And you can read about the whole story in Exodus 12, if you're at loose end this afternoon. Um, Part of the celebration was eating unleavened bread. It says in Exodus 12, verse 15, For seven days you to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. So on the first day of the celebration, the Jewish people light a candle, um, or probably a torch these days, and they search through their house, every cupboard, every forgotten corner, every nook and cranny, whatever a cranny is, um, and they're looking for old bits of bread to throw away. And in those days, whenever you bait a loaf of bread, you would separate Um, part of the dough and you would leave it in water and it would ferment and when you made a new batch um, you would use the fermented bread that would become the leaven and that would go into the new batch and it would ferment while it was cooking um, release the gas uh, and cause the bread to rise and then this process is repeated time and time again so in that way the bit of the new the new bread always had a bit of the old bread in it so when they were freed from slavery, 
When they were taken out of captivity, they were not permitted to eat anything from the past. This is why they had unleavened bread. And the the leaven represented the old life, the way things were when they were in slavery in Egypt. And it needed to be left behind. So Paul is telling them that if it isn't left behind, if the the sin, because the leaven is the sin, isn't left behind, it's going to have a corrupting influence on them. It's going to spread throughout. And in typical Paul fashion, he, he slips Jesus into the analogy. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Jesus has already died for you. He's already set you free. Not from slavery in Egypt, but free from sin and death. But if you're going to keep holding on to the leaven, if you're going to keep holding on to that thing from the past, then you're not living in the reality of that freedom. You've missed it. You may be free from sin, but if you choose to add the stuff that you lived, that you had in your old life, it's no good. You're not living in that freedom. And Jesus puts it another way um, on the, the Sermon on the Mount that we were looking at earlier. He says that you are the salt of the earth. We like our food analogies, don't we, in the Bible? Uh, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And the whole point of salt is to, to prevent decay, to stop the meat from going bad. But if you're allowing sin to hold influence over you, you're not living in the reality of your salvation. Jesus didn't just die to forgive you of your sins, but to help you get rid of them, to help you live free from them. I love the way um, Paul writes about it in another letter of his to the Romans. He says this, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. A new life. Free from the past. Free from its influences. Free from the things that hold us, held us down. That hold, held on to us. Those sins, that leaven, that stuff that was ingrained in us that we've been set free from. We can live a new life. And I think the reality is that this has to be um, a daily decision for us. I think this is why Paul says, let us keep the festival. Let's keep this idea, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And there's a very real sense in which we need to search ourselves each day And find those bits of our old life that shouldn't be there and throw them out. To try and live in the reality of our new life. To get rid of malice and wickedness and look for sincerity and truth. And if we don't, the effects can be devastating, both for the church and the individual. Paul, um, are you okay? I know this is a little bit heavy this morning. You alright? Everyone okay? You're still with me? Paul had heard about these events. He was aware that it was going on. It means that that what was happening in the church um, had spread around. They'd had a reputation. People were hearing about it. And they they were becoming aware of the sorts of things that the believers, the followers of Jesus, were getting up to. 
And it was giving them an opinion of the church. I wonder what sorts of things people think about our church from the way that we behave. That's a challenging question. And Paul knew that the reputation could destroy the church. That's why in chapter 4 he says, I urge you to imitate me. And Paul wasn't someone who, who said, do as I say and not as I do. Paul was someone who walked the talk. He lived his life before Jesus. If you read through the book of Acts written by Dr. Luke, you can see that Paul had this singular focus, which was Jesus. I spoke last week to you about how he was an under-rower. He kept his eyes fixed on Jesus. And that was all there was for him. That was his focus in his life. And I read this week um, about a lady called Maggie. And Maggie spent her childhood with a group of Christians who gave her enough reason to doubt the genuineness of their Christian faith. Their words and actions didn't match up. And in later life, she wrote a poem about this experience. I just want to read it to you this morning. Do you know, do you understand, that you represent Jesus to me? Do you know, do you understand, that when you treat me with gentleness, it raises the question in my mind that maybe he is gentle too. Maybe he isn't someone who laughs when I'm hurt. Do you know, do you understand that when you listen to my questions and don't laugh, I think, what if Jesus is interested in me too? Do you know, do you understand that when I hear you talk about arguments and conflicts and scars from your past, I think, maybe I'm just a regular person instead of a bad, no good little girl who deserves abuse? If you care, I think maybe he cares. And then there's this flame of hope that burns inside of me. And for a while I'm afraid to breathe because it might go out. Do you know, do you understand that your words are his words? Your face, his face to someone like me. Please be who you say you are. Please, God, don't let this be another trick. Please let it be real. Please. Do you know, do you understand that you represent Jesus to me? You know, the way we live our lives is important because it serves as a testimony that can attest to the truth of our message. Jesus said that your love for one another will prove that you are my disciples. And this is what Paul wants for the church. He wants their words and their actions to match up. And I think there's a real challenge for us there this morning. Time is running short. One final point from the chapter. He says, I wrote to you in my letter, verse 9, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But I'm writing you now that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. Don't even eat with such people. We need great care. I think sometimes as Christians we get a reputation for being a bit judgmental, a bit judgy, for looking down on others in the world. And Paul is saying we've got no right. We've got no right to judge people outside of the church, to demand that they change anything about their lifestyle. But our responsibility is to ensure that those who follow Jesus, live in such a way that brings honour to him. To look out for each other. To not be complacent about the sin in our lives, but to challenge each other. 
both for the sake of our own walk with Christ, the sake of our own spiritual health, and for those that we're trying to witness to.